0: Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author, Mark Fontecchio.
1: Christmas Day of 1968, three astronauts in Apollo 8 circled the dark side of the moon and headed for home. And suddenly, over the horizon of the moon rose the blue and white Earth, crowned by the light of the sun against the black void of space. Now, these sophisticated men, these educated men, trained in science, trained in technology, there's a lot of things they didn't do. They didn't utter Einstein's name, and they didn't start quoting poetry. Only one thing could capture the awe-inspiring thrill of this incredible sight to behold. Billions of people heard the voice from outer space as the astronaut read it, In the beginning, God. The only concept worthy enough to describe the unspeakable wonder that we have at the handiwork of the Creator. Our Christian faith begins and ends with these words. In the beginning, God. Everything we believe in the Word of God and everything we believe in the Christian faith stands or falls with these words. In the beginning, God. Because all of creation had to have a beginning. Because the second law of thermodynamics, yes, we're already going right for the heart of it, the second law of thermodynamics teaches us that as energy is transferred or transformed, more and more of it is wasted. And that there is a natural tendency of any isolated system to degenerate into a more disordered state. So all of the energy available in the universe is already winding down. This is something we observe in science. This is something we observe in creation. And so in order for something to wind down, it must have first been wound up. There must have been a beginning, which leaves us with only two possibilities. Either there is an eternal God with a mind that can create, who is outside of time, outside of creation itself that is winding down, or there is, think of this, infinite matter with no mind, but it's always been, it's eternal, and it creates things. Which of these two things makes the most amount of sense? I have never seen a rock create things. It would be impressive, but I've never seen it. I have seen men made in the image of God, who have taken rocks and create things. The evolutionist has to believe in eternal matter that can create. But this is not even rational and doesn't even make sense scientifically. Because if matter can create, then it itself is subject to decay. So how can it be eternal? There's a problem there. There's a cause and effect creation is winding down, and so there must be a creator. Now, we have only one verse in Genesis we're going to cover this morning, because while we are here, I want to answer some of the most common questions that Christians typically have about Genesis. And so the very first question we want to answer is this. Did Moses really write Genesis? Because there's a very liberal and deadly belief circulated in the Bible colleges and seminaries today that denies Moses wrote Genesis. It's called the documentary hypothesis, sometimes called JEPD, hypothesis. The basic idea is this. Don't waste your time on it. It's, it's just a bunch of garbage, honestly. But the basic idea is this. Anonymous authors compiled the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, and the documentary hypothesis then sets out to deny Moses as the author of those first five books. Instead of stating that it was written when we think it was, they say it was written much later, around 850 B.C., taking the myths and legends of Babylon and all the other nations and adding them to the campfire stories, if you will, of the Hebrew people. Now, how did this idea get started? Well, in 1753 in Paris, it got started and it really caught fire in the 1800s under a man by the name of Julius Wellhausen. And it was started by the critics of Scripture, those who believed in evolutionary thinking, those who believed we came out of a pit of slime. And so they need to come up with a way to explain away parts of Genesis. Genesis was embarrassing to them. It was crude thinking, and they needed an explanation. But this is a dangerous teaching rooted in unbelief that calls into question not just Genesis, but the entire word of God. So who wrote Genesis? Well, Moses did around 1400 BC, roughly. Now Moses wasn't around. If you have tracked the history of the old Testament, Moses wasn't there when the earth was created, he wasn't there. So how does he know exactly what happened? Moses wasn't there when Adam and Eve walked around in the garden. So how does he know? And so I believe, first and foremost, God revealed the information to him. God gave him directly the information. But secondly, Moses may have had some written records. See, these are what the clay tablets look like in that day. We think of clay tablets as clumsy. These were not. These were very, very easy to carry. They could be carried in one hand and easily could have been brought onto the ark to carry the records of the patriarchs and later used by Moses under the inspiration of God to compile the records from before this time, passing them down from Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just passing the records down. In the book of Genesis, If you look in the entire book, there's 11 different verses, 11 different verses or places which read something like, these are the generations of, these are the generation, or this is the generation of, and the Hebrew word toledot for generations can also mean origins or history or even family history. In these 11 verses or statements, each of them comes either before or after a description of historical events that involved a personal name. And so it seems very, very possible that Adam and Noah and Shem and these others wrote of the historical accounts under the inspiration of the spirit of God and pass these records down and that they were preserved on tablet form until compiled by Moses. Now we know that the author of the Pentateuch was an eyewitness to the events of the Exodus itself. We know that we know that whoever wrote the Pentateuch, whoever wrote the book of Genesis was an eyewitness to the events of the Exodus of the Hebrew people coming from out of Egypt. And he was an eyewitness to the Egyptian customs. And and this would be expected, of course, by Moses. The author actually uses several Egyptian words. It's one of those clues that we look at. The Pentateuch claims in many places that Moses was the author. And we see the same thing throughout the Old Testament. But even more impressive to me than that are the words of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That kind of settles it for me. Because he spoke often of Moses writing in the law. He said in Matthew 8, Matthew 19, Mark 7, Mark 12, Luke 24, John 5 and John 7. That's often. So we've already shown that if Moses did not write Genesis, then the Bible falls apart. See, if if Moses did not really write Genesis, then the Bible falls apart. Then Christ was a liar And neither the Old Testament is true or the New Testament is true because it cites Moses as the author repeatedly, which is precisely why it's under attack by the critics. In fact, in Luke 16, 31, we have a very interesting statement. Luke 16, 31, a very important statement from the Lord Jesus about the rich man and Abraham and Lazarus. And this is the account where Jesus said this. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe the testimony of someone who rises from the dead. And by way of application, certainly we would see this principle ring true today, wouldn't we? That when liberal churches or liberal schools and seminaries reject the historical and divinely inspired witness of Moses, including Genesis, including the first book of the Bible, it's not too long after that they also begin to reject the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that. John spoke of Moses. Luke, Paul, and the author of Hebrews, they all spoke of Moses. The Bible stands or falls in Genesis. Look at John 5. Again, the words of Jesus, another verse you need to think about. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What you have in Genesis, eyewitness accounts of what God did We have eyewitness accounts of what God did. And it teaches that instead of the earth being billions of years old, we have a record in the Old Testament with the genealogy of the people that live since the time it happened, which tells us that the earth is young, about 6,000 years old. And that creation happened around 4,000 B.C. And this is what you see in the New Testament, the Bible views the events and people as real history. Real history. When Jesus talked about marriage, look at what he said in Mark 10. He said, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but what? One flesh. Now the age and unique creation of Adam and Eve mattered to Jesus. He quoted Genesis 127 and Genesis 224. He quoted about a real first man and a real first woman who became the first couple, which is the basis for marriage today. He didn't create a man and a man, and he certainly didn't create a woman and a woman. Evolution teaches that people evolve from ape-like creatures. Jesus said Adam and Eve were there from the beginning of creation, not billions of years later. So when Christians try to teach, hear this, an old earth, when Christians try to teach an old earth, they're undermining the very words of Jesus Christ. He said they were there from the beginning. That's his words. They were there from the beginning, not billions of years later. Even the specific seven day time frame of the creation week matters to God. Even that the Bible tells us that God himself wrote the 10 commandments. How with his finger. Do you remember the fourth commandment? says remember the sabbath day to keep it holy six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is the sabbath of the lord your god in it you shall do no work and just on a side note let me say we're not under the law the church is not israel israel's not the church but the new testament does teach christians that we observe the lord's day the first day of the week sunday and it's not a second saturday sunday is not a second saturday It's a day to assemble as the people of God to fellowship, to worship, and to study. Sunday's not a second Saturday. Treat it like it is, and you're hurting your own walk with Jesus Christ, your relationship with God. Here in Exodus, the text is speaking of a specific seven-day week. And do you remember the reason Israel was supposed to keep the Sabbath? Do you remember? Verse 11 of Exodus 20. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. See, the time frame of the creation week is important to God. Otherwise, this commandment is meaningless, completely meaningless. And if you are one who tries to say that, yes, God created, but the earth is very, very old, that the creation days were really long periods of time, then the days of the working week would have to be as well. So you better be prepared to work for 6 billion years. And then you can have 1 billion off <laughs> if you make it that long, but you got to make it that long. And then you can have 1 billion years off. That's your promise. Genesis matters. Genesis matters because it directly impacts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said this to be true. Paul did. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul taught on the resurrection of Christ. And he explained why Jesus came to die. And there he said this, he said, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die. Even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And then in verse 45 down later, he says, and so it is written. The first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. Now, why is this important? Because the death of Adam is a core part of our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe in evolution or if you believe God created, but he did it over millions or billions of years, the problem is, is that you're putting death before Adam's sin. And that undermines the very core of the gospel message. To teach an old earth, an old earth with death before Adam undermines the gospel of Christ. So let's go back to Genesis. You know these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrews titled this book according to the first word of the book, which was just a very, very calm and practice back then. So they called it Bereshit, which means in the beginning. That's what it means, in the beginning. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek in about 250 BC, the Greek equivalent of the title was rendered Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Today, astronomers have come down on the side of believing that galaxies and galaxy clusters are pregnant, their words, pregnant with some sort of exotic material that is invisible to us. They call it Dark matter, sounds like Star Wars, doesn't it? Dark matter, waiting for a Sith or something to come out. They have not yet identified what it is exactly, but it's not because they haven't tried. Despite decades of using everything they can think of from gamma ray telescopes in outer space to cryogenic subatomic particle monitors buried deep inside a northern Minnesota mine, Their occasional reports of success are about as reliable as Elvis or a Bigfoot sighting. And the dark matter isn't even the most astonishing thing about this. The modern astrophysicists have discovered about gravity, there is something else, they call it dark energy, dark energy. And all told, astronomers have concluded that dark energy comprises some 68% of the total universe and dark matter about 27% they think. That means only 5% of the universe is even visible to us. 5% of the universe is visible to us. In other words, everything we call scientific knowledge today is based on 5% of what can be seen, of what there is to know about creation. 95% 95% of it is hidden to us. But we know very little bit about that 95%. Even though the experts claim we need to believe them when they say that we are created, that it all started billions and billions of years ago. This is University of Oxford professor of astrophysics, Pedro Ferreira. Listen to what he himself says about himself and most physicists about the origins and basic elements of the universe. He admits, and I quote, we are at a complete loss of how to explain some of the most fundamental but baffling observations of how our universe behaves. There is a tremendous, even cosmic chasm between the physics we know and love and some of the phenomena that we observe, but we simply cannot make head or tail of. We have no idea how to bridge this chasm, yet we're proceeding to construct ever more expensive experiments and observatories in the hope that we will. And then listen to what he said next. I have spent most of my adult life staring at the cosmic chasm, the abyss between what we know and what we don't. And while our knowledge of the universe has improved dramatically in that time, our ignorance has become only more focused. We're no closer to answering the big questions about dark matter, dark energy, and the origins of the universe than when I started out. This isn't for a lack of trying. And a titanic effort is now underway to try and figure out all these. Mysterious aspects of the universe, but there's no guarantee we'll succeed. And we might end up never really grasping how the universe works. That's a leading scientist admitting that we really don't know. We really don't know how this this all works. I'm going to go with the record given by the one who was there. Given by the one who did the creating. That's where I'm at. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we know from the scripture that God exists outside of time. God exists outside of time. So when we're talking of the beginning, we're talking specifically about the beginning of creation. But here's something you don't see in the English. The text reads like this. In the beginning, God, plural, created, singular, the heavens and the earth. God directed Moses to use the Hebrew plural term, Elohim for God rather than the singular L. But he does use the singular form of the Hebrew verb, created. And Moses did it again down in Genesis 1 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. There you see it clear in the English, don't you? But why plural? Plural because we serve a triune God, one God, three persons. Not fully revealed in the word of God until the New Testament, but this doctrine was present from the very first words of Scripture. John 1 tells us this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The title for Jesus is the word. It was Jesus who spoke this creation into existence. It was Jesus. We know this to be true because verse 18 of John tells us, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is the bosom of the father, he has declared him. No one has seen the father. If a man has seen God, he has seen the son. Colossians 1.16, the context is speaking of Christ. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus Christ is the creator. Jesus Christ is the creator. He made man. He walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And we will see in verse two that the spirit of God was involved in creation too, because it tells us this. It says the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit, three persons, one God. Verse one again, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim. The root meaning of this title for God is the powerful one. See, Moses is telling us God's power is seen in creation. He's saying that right there in Hebrew. Paul told us the same thing in Romans 1.20, didn't he? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as the eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. And so as we come back to Genesis, I want you to understand three things. One, all living things were created about 6,000 years ago in six literal earth rotation days. Six literal earth rotation days. Second, and you have to understand this, otherwise you've just destroyed the Bible. There was no death. There was no bloodshed or suffering before Adam's fall into sin. And third, when we get to the flood, we will see that it covered the whole world, which vastly impacts the dating of the earth because the flood laid down a massive number of fossils. It directly impacted the climate, the rocks, and all of life on earth. Now, the very first word in the Hebrew is the word Bereshit, it occurs without the article. And it's important. It's a proper noun and it means absolute beginning. That's the meaning absolute beginning. Now this matters because the Hebrew here is very, very specific. The construction of the Hebrew means it cannot be translated in the beginning of God's creating or even when God began creating. Because this is what people who believe in theistic evolution would have you believe. But the Hebrew can't mean that, that God started creating in Genesis 1-1, and it took a really long time for it to happen to get where we are today. But it doesn't say that. It says in Hebrew, the absolute beginning, the absolute beginning. Now, take it a step further with me. What did God create in Genesis 1? What did he create? what says the heavens and the earth. This is a figure of speech in Hebrew where two opposites are combined into an all-encompassing single concept. This is common in the Bible, and we do this all the time in language. One example, just simply from top to bottom, right? And everything in between, we do that, all-encompassing. And so what is the meaning here? It means the totality of creation, not just the earth, not just our atmosphere, not just our solar system. There is no Hebrew word for universe. There isn't. There isn't one. The word for earth just refers to the planet in which we live. And the word for heavens means everything above, everything in creation, not a part of the earth. So this opening statement in the Hebrew Bible saying that God created the universe This is the summary of it all, and the rest of Genesis 1 gives us the details of how it really happened. And again, these things matter. These matter. Because some of those who believe in an old earth believe that Genesis 1.1 means that the sun, moon, and stars were created over a vast, vast period of time before there were any days on earth. But hear me, there cannot be a gap in between verse 1 and verse 2. First of all, because just a simple observation in Genesis one, the sun, the moon, and the stars are not even mentioned until day four. So there's a problem, which is down in verse 14. Second, I tell you guys repeatedly that words have meaning all the time. Words have meaning. If you get nothing else out of that church, you'll learn that words have meaning and that God spoke to us with words using language. Okay. Okay. We're going to cover verse two next week, but let's skip ahead again for a moment and let's cheat. We're going to read ahead. We know what verse two is. We'll read both verses together. It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and the darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, between verse one and verse two is where people try to put a gap in time. They do this on purpose. They do this to try to accommodate evolution. So they say God created the universe. And then a long time later, God got very specific and did his work of creation on earth. But verse two starts with a Hebrew vav. And I know that doesn't mean much to you, but it can mean and it can mean but or now. And this is where it gets very detailed in the Hebrew, and it gets really important. If a Hebrew vav precedes a noun, it has the specific meaning of an explanation. In other words, verse 2 cannot be a sequence of events that happened later. The Hebrew will not allow it. It cannot be saying, and then the earth became this, like theistic evolution. It cannot. Moses was very, very specific with the Hebrew. Verse two is the only verse in Genesis one that starts this way. All other 28 verses in Genesis one that begin with the word and have the Vav consecutive. And if you really want to see this in an English translation, go look in the King James, the old King James. They did a great job with this. It's not as good in the new King James. They muddied the waters a bit, but look at it. Vav And then a verb, vav used in a sequence of events, but not here in verse two. Verse two, according to the words used and preserved by God for us, mean verse one is the general statement. Verse two is the beginning of the explanation of verse one. You don't get to attempt to cram millions or billions of years into the text. You simply don't and still call yourself consistent with the text. There is no gap in time between these verses. There cannot be in the Hebrew. The Bible teaches a young earth created by a sovereign creator. This is the beginning of creation, but absolutely not the beginning of God, but a beginning to time and, and the earth and the space environment in which we live. Because the Bible doesn't set out to prove the existence of God. It doesn't. In the beginning, there was no one who doubted God. In the beginning, there was no one who doubted God because it was only God before he created Instead of attempting to prove there is a God, the Bible just simply says this in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that's what evolution really teaches. If you want to get to the core of it, it's the logical conclusion of this mindset that there is no God. But what about all the science, all the science that's out there that proves an old earth? I think a better question is this. What about all the science that proves a young earth? What about that? Just take some of it. We could go for days. Just take the continents. They're eroding too fast. They're eroding too fast. If the continents were billions of years old, they would have been eroded by wind and water countless times over. There'd be nothing left. There'd be nothing left. There's been DNA taken from bacteria that is supposed to be from ancient fossils that are said to be 425 million years old but here's the problem dna can't last that long not more than thousands of years same with the dinosaur blood cells this is a big problem for them their protein and dna are all said to be more than 65 million years old and that is dinosaur dna right there but it it makes a lot more sense if dinosaurs lived alongside of man with a young earth, which is what the Bible teaches. If evolution is true and the earth is billions of years old, then how come in the fossil records, how come in the fossil records and some of the oldest fossil records, we have things like jellyfish and graptolites and hundreds of species that remain exactly, precisely unchanged from what they are today? The Grand Canyon is said to have taken millions of years, but the evidence shows it was formed during the flood. The tightly bent strata or rock layers that are bent without signs of melting or fracturing shows that the quick folding of these layers before they had time to solidify, very consistent with a flood. Experiments have shown that oil and coal form quicker than we thought. It doesn't take millions of years. That's why we never seem to run out. We always find more. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Brown coal can be created in weeks and black coal in months. Most river valleys, if you look at them, they're too large for the streams that they contain. It's been estimated that in the past, streams had from 20 to 60 times the amount of water that they do now. That fits perfectly with a global flood. That makes a lot of sense. Carbon 14 in coal suggests ages of thousands of years, not millions. Same with oil, same with fossil woods. Evidence of recent volcanoes on our moon doesn't fit the narrative of millions of years because the moon should have cooled. It should be pretty cold by now. The moon itself is retreating. You've heard this probably, that it's moving away. It's actually moving away from the earth about four centimeters a year. Well, that creates a problem for evolution because backing it up into their time frame, the moon and the earth over billions of years, they would have been kablam on top of each other. Or if we go a little further out, consider Jupiter. This one fascinates me. When NASA sent a probe, Galileo, to go past Jupiter and all its moons. That's one of its moons. On one of its moons, not Jupiter itself, but on one of its moons, it recorded at least, this is a low estimate, at least 80 active volcanoes, which is what you'd expect if it was a young creation. But not billions, because if this moon had been erupting even at 10% of the rate that it is now for a period, let's just give them 4.5 billion years, it would have erupted its entire mass 40 times over. It would have been out. Genesis is the story of God's creation. If you believe Genesis 1-1, no other verse in the Bible should be a problem for you. Because if God can create the whole universe speak it into existence out of nothing, then he has no problem raising people from the dead. See how that works? And he has no problem with a virgin birth. Genesis is when time on earth began and it is the God who is outside of time, the God who had no beginning, no end, who created it for us. Modern physics is just starting to catch up with the Bible. It is just starting to catch up with the Bible. Einstein's general relativity shows that time is connected with matter. Time is now known to be a part of the space time universe. That gets weird and all sorts of stuff, and Hannah's explained this to me so many times, and I think I got it. But it basically doesn't exist, time doesn't exist apart from matter or energy, it doesn't exist apart from God's creation. And so what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, it it means that since time is part of the created order itself, God is not subject to time, which is what the Bible tells us. So he knows the future perfectly, which means we can trust his promises of the future, can't we? Because for God, there is good as done. It's been long said since the third century to think of it like a tower. If a person is up on a tower overlooking a path that people are on, the people on the path can't see what's ahead. But the person sitting up on that tower absolutely can. So he knows exactly what obstacles they're going to overcome and, and face. See, the path represents time. And we can't see the future, but in the, the person in the tower, that, that represents God. And he's outside of time. He can see the whole path of man in the beginning, God created. Now this verb for created is only used in scripture to speak of God creating, never of man, never of man. It is only applied to divine creation. And in the Hebrew form, hear that very carefully, in the Hebrew form that it's used, it can only refer to the production of something which had no existence before. The word itself can be used other ways. It can, but not in the Hebrew form, it is in here. And people miss this point. In other words, I'm telling you, there is no pre-existing material mentioned in verse 1. Meaning God created it out of nothing. He created it out of nothing. He made something which had no existence before. Genesis 1.1 begins the creation of God. Day 1 continues all the way down to verse 5, which we'll look at next week. Verse 1 is the record of the first part of the work brought into being on the first day. And Genesis confronts us with the reminder that God has made everything there is. One of the most amazing discoveries that astrophysicists have made in recent decades, listen to this number, is that if gravity were just one trillionth of 1%, one trillionth of 1% stronger, our universe would have reversed course long ago. It would have been a catastrophic collapse ending in the big crunch. It would have been the big crunch. Okay. And if gravity were just one trillionth of 1% weaker, our universe would have been flying apart so quick that planets, stars, and galaxies would be nothing more than dust in the wind. And this is said to be just all an accident that everything turned out so perfectly well for us. Aren't we lucky? Sir Fred Hoyle, the late University of Cambridge astronomer, an avowed atheist, an avowed atheist, came to the conclusion that he didn't think so, not for a second. After doing the math, after doing all the calculations, He discovered that the odds of our being accidents of nature are comparable to the likelihood of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling scrap metal into a fully functioning Boeing 747. And after doing his calculations, this is what he said about these odds. He said so small as to be negligible even if our tornado were to blow through enough junkyards to fill the whole universe one arrives at the conclusion that biomaterials with their amazing measure or order must be the outcome of intelligent design. See, those are the honest words of an atheist that's looking at the evidence. Evolutionists like to claim that our sun is just an average star, one among billions is just an average star, no big deal. And they're thinking there's no reason to believe our sun is that unusual because if our sun was special... Well, that might support the idea that a loving creator made it for us, and then they have a problem. They have to be accountable to God. But our sun is very special indeed. Stars come in a variety of sizes, colors, and temperatures. As a single class G star, our sun is perfectly fitted to support life on Earth. Most stars are not. Just to give you an idea, most common stars, about 75% of them are what is called Red dwarfs. And it's very common for these stars to emit massive flares or eruptions of superheated material, radiation, and charged particles that blast out into space. Large enough flares that can sterilize any planets orbiting the stars. Now, our sun, of course, does release small flares at times, but they are small. They are very, very small and gentle compared to what has been observed in space. Because there have been stars. Observe producing these super flares up to 10 million times more energetic than the ones that come from our sun. That would ruin your day. Even among the stars that are like our sun, it is still unique. In a study of 83,000 solar type stars, 148 of them erupted in just 120 days of observing. So if you extend this rate out, each solar type star would have more than a 50% chance of erupting every 100 years. And over thousands of years, a typical sun-like star should have multiple massive eruptions. Listen to how their own study concluded in their summary, their words, they said, the flares of our sun are thousands of times punier (laughs) than those on similar stars, but why? Secular astronomers are scratching their heads over this. They can't figure it out. They don't know. But not astronomers who hold to creation. They're not surprised by this. Why? Because the Bible tells us something very important. It says it in Isaiah 45. It says, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no other. See, our sun was designed by a masterful creator to support life for us. So we shouldn't be surprised if we look at it and it supports life very, very well. Our earth, our sun, our solar system are fearfully and wonderfully made to be our home. And they're fearfully and wonderfully made to proclaim the glory of their creator. God spoke creation into existence. He did it out of nothing but his power and might. And Hebrews 11 tells us in chapter 11, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. But it's not an empty faith that we hold to. It's a faith that's backed by science. It's backed by common sense. Backed by the God who loves us. Told to us in his word, the heavens declare the glory of God. So friends, we study creation. We study Genesis because it helps us to understand God's love, God's power, and his eternal plan. So let your life, Christian, reflect the worship that is due to him and him alone with trust that we serve a God who knows exactly, exactly what he's doing from start to finish and rejoice in him.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit Word.com. Return to the Word Pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.